Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. How do we explain the flirtation, amounting sometimes to a love affair, between radical Islam and the Western progressive left, as represented by, for example, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party? Professor Richard Landers, an American medieval historian now based in Jerusalem, has a fascinating theory about this. He was co-founder and director of the influential Center for Millennial Studies at Boston University, which did groundbreaking research into religious and political apocalyptic prophecies in the period immediately before and after the year 2000. Western liberals, he argues, have allowed their vision of universal peace and justice to be tainted by the apocalyptic fantasies of jihadis, which are predicated on the notion of a global Jewish conspiracy. He joins me today. Richard Landis, your academic speciality is millennialism, which is the study of the belief in, as you put it in your most recent book, Heaven on Earth. The belief that we're moving towards a just, equal, perfect society is held in common by all sorts of different political and religious movements, and it can take peaceful, progressive forms, or it can take violent forms. Now, in recent years, we've seen something that baffles a lot of people, which is what's known as the Red-Green Alliance, which is an alliance between the global progressive left, who have always preached, or at least in recent years have preached, equality and peace, with a special emphasis on peace, peace studies, peace marches, and global jihadism, which preaches anything but peace. The peace will only come after the infidels have been defeated. So explaining why a peaceful version of transformation and a violent vision of transformation, which, by the way, I, I don't equate with the whole of Islam by any means, but it's a, it's a strain within Islam, right. have come to be talking to each other and comfortable in each other's right. company is baffling. And I wondered if you could take us through, as simply as possible, your notion of what's going on. Right. Okay, so I see both the progressive left and the, I call them caliphaters, but the people who believe, the Muslims who believe that in this generation there will be a global caliphate, Islam will rule the world. Both of those groups I consider millennial. Now, not all Westerners are global progressives, and not all Muslims are uh, caliphaters, who, and certainly not jihadis. But you have an ideology at the heart of both of them that is millennial. One is different from the other in the sense that for the jihadis in particular, you're looking at an imperial global millennium, Islam rules the world, uh, that's brought about by a cataclysm that they actively bring on, namely their jihadi war. On the other side, you have the progressives who are almost exactly the opposite. In other words, they believe in an egalitarian millennium. They believe in a millennium of peace without coercion. And yet somehow they've come together. How have they come together? Partly because the global left, which is, you know, really excited by images of empathizing with the other and opening oneself up to the other and 
and embracing the other, that for them is a salvific move. If you embrace the other, then the two of you can live in peace. But if you reject them, if you think of us, them, then it's bad. And that leads to war. And on the other hand, you have the jihadis who think in us, them in ferocious terms. The apocalyptic other is to be wiped out. And only the people who are willing to convert to Islam or accept subjection are going to live. And what happened was, and it still needs explanation, but what happened was that the the egalitarian progressive embraced the other, believed that their job was to embrace the Muslims and to embrace all of them, including the jihadis, and that this would somehow bring about a kind of collective redemption. Now, that sounds really weird, but it takes place over a particular issue which is in the year 2000, it had been building before, but in the year 2000 specifically, at the end of the year 2000, with the outbreak of the Antifada in Israel and the dissemination of all these images of Israel killing Palestinian kids in their father's arms and so on. When that happened, the left adopted the apocalyptic narrative of the jihadis that Israel was the Antichrist. And that notion that Israel was evil and that getting rid of Israel would bring about collective redemption was from a long time a jihadi, a caliphate, apocalyptic narrative. And now, previously at some of the edges of the left, but now at the center of the left was the support for the Palestinians as a redemptive act of liberalism. Okay. Your theory is... A controversial one. I have to make that perfectly clear right now that it's a controversial theory and lots of people wouldn't agree with you. And lots of people would have difficulty saying that the progressive left had adopted a a sort of exterminationist attitude towards the Jews. And if you ask the progressive left, including those who use anti-Semitic rhetoric, they would say, of course not. We're doing nothing of the sort. I'm not arguing that. You're not arguing that. What I'm arguing is that they adopted the vision of Israel as bad, indeed evil, and that it should be abolished. They're not arguing that all the Jews should be wiped out. The jihadis are. But they platform with them. Jeremy Corbyn is on the same platform with people who are saying this. He doesn't say anything against it. So when he says, I'm doing nothing of the sort, you know, that's nonsense. He's platforming with exterminationist anti-Semites. Now, one could come up with other explanations for why Israel is stigmatized, some of, some of which might involve problems with the state of Israel itself. But one theory I heard, I think it was R.W. Johnson made this argument very powerfully, was right. that the left was desperately in search of an anti-colonialist cause. And it had, since, since colonies had basically ceased to exist, it was <laughs> left with Israel, right. which they thought of as a Western colony. So and they threw they all that, which, right. which they misidentified as, as, as a Western colony and threw all the uh, attention into going, and, uh, into going after Israel. But it is a fact that dark anti-Semitic rhetoric right. has crept into the language of a Western political party, which traditionally 
contained a significant number of Jews. It was friendly to Jewish people. And this, for many people, and especially, for example, for Jewish friends of mine who belong to the Labour Party, incredibly troubling. So let me ask you, where did the progressive left, in their, in their wish to make common cause with... You know, my, my enemy's enemy is my friend, common cause with the oppressed people, as they saw it. Did they come to borrow the toxic tropes right. okay. of jihadist anti-Semites? All right, so again, I'm going to go to the year 2000. In 2000, you have the outbreak of the Antifada. You have this picture of this 12-year-old boy, Muhammad Abdullah, who's killed in cold blood in his father's arms by the IDF, according to the narrative that circulated worldwide. A French journalist looking at this says, this picture erases, replaces the picture of boy in the Warsaw Ghetto. So in other words, the Israelis are the new Nazis. Now that's a move, that's a narrative move. It's a replacement narrative in which the Palestinians are the new Jews and the Israelis are the new Nazis. And it is widely accepted and it's repeated by Nobel Prize winners. It becomes part of the language of the left. And in 2005, uh, after five years of the kind of coverage that the journalists were so good at, um, over 50% of Europeans believe the Israelis were committing genocide against the Palestinian people. And that's still a widely held point of view. It's, it's one of the planks in the Black Lives Matter. It is a formal position these days, but that's not the point I wanted to make. In 2002, lethal journalism, the, the, the journalists who report Palestinian war propaganda as news, created an enormous furor over the Israelis' uh, operation in Jenin. It was a massacre, there were mass graves, etc., etc., all Nazi behavior. And people went to town and journalists... You had Western liberals, Western progressives, demonstrating against Israel, wearing suicide belts to show their solidarity with Palestinian jihadis who were blowing up Jews in their synagogues and restaurants and, and, and buses, not realizing that they were cheering on their enemy. So this is a, this is a kind of, I would call it cognitive dis and moral disorientation on a massive scale. I, I couldn't agree more. Okay, so, and that's how, uh, my, the book I just finished the manuscript of, but as you can imagine, I'm having difficulty finding a publisher for, goes over these first three years of the new millennium, I'm a medievalist, it's the new millennium, but for most people, the new century, um, go over the first three years and how the West literally charged over the cliff in its reaction to attacks from jihadis on the West. And that includes not just Israel, but the United States, and then Europe with the, my last chapter is on the Danish cartoon scandal. Is there anything in common between the vision of heaven on earth or the perfectly just and equal right. society held by secular progressives right. and fundamentalist Muslims. Uh, look, I think that there is no question that millennial Muslims who believe in Sharia as the perfect state, they really believe that this is what mankind needs that they will discover once they try and do it, as we've seen repeatedly in the cases where they do try and do it, that it's a nightmare. It could be too late by the time they figure that one out. For Western progressives to, to, to think that these 
caliphaters, these jihadis, these the people who want the global caliphate, like Linda Sarsour, somebody who thinks that Sharia is a good thing, the people who accept people like that into their movements are essentially willfully blind to the radical difference between the way triumphalist Muslims or any triumphalist tradition thinks about human relations and the way progressives think about human relations. Do you think one of the things they might have in common is that both disorientated. Well, aren't we all? (laughs) Well, aren't we all is is exactly the point I was going to make. I think we're all disorientated by the very rapid onward march of technology. And it is not just a function of us getting older, though we are and we've known each other for for 25 years. But it's a function of the acceleration of change, which has disempowered institutions generally and empowered individuals uh, they could be in the world of business or they could be well, they, they could be religious prophets they could be any individual really to spread a message which attempts to make sense of a world that they don't fundamentally right. understand because they feel it's out of control and hence the extraordinary popularity of conspiracy theories yes. that we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years so do you think both the progressive left and radical Islam, and everybody else for that matter, are desperately trying to make sense of a world in which the future is not clear. Mm-hmm. So during the 20th century, it, it made some sort of sense to think of inevitable social progress brought about by technology and also the inevitable triumph of the welfare state as pioneered in Western countries and also in Israel. Now, to an extent, that has been lost as power is increasingly in the hands, I'm in danger of sounding like a conspiracy theory myself, but is <laughs> is increasingly in the hands of those who wield the technology. Right. And that both Islam, which has been very badly wrong-footed by technological advance, right. because it, it has never Perfect managed to stay ahead of technological change. It has never been a driver of technological change. But also, people in the West share a sense of confusion. Yes. I would argue that although modernity and sort of secular progressivism is built on uh, a rejection of the superstition of believing in the year 1000 or the year 2000 or, you know, all of this nonsense. Or even God. Or, or even God. Or even God, actually, right? So yeah. even though it builds itself on rejecting this kind of hysterical, superstitious thinking, modernity carries within it a, a, both a millennial impulse. I think democracy is the unintended consequences of millennial movement. And just, and just to remind people, because right. I think we have to keep reminding people right. that when you talk about millennial, you're talking about... M- making the world a perfect uh, place. Making the world a perfect place, not the end of the world. Right. Yeah, okay, right. carry on, sorry. So I think that the modern democracies are, in a sense, failed millennial movements. They didn't bring about everything, but they sure changed a lot. And for my peasants in the middle, ages to be able to live in a modern society, they would consider that the millennium had come, okay, because they didn't have, they had lords who were really mean. And, and, and really another thing I should, lords. another thing I should explain, and the t- it's unfortunate that the terminology in, in this area is so complicated, but when mm-hmm. we talk about millennium, it's, there, there's another meaning of it, and the millennium means in religious or eschatological terms, the perfect 
society. It's taken from the book of Revelation, but it, it, it doesn't mean a period necessarily of a thousand years. So right. let, let's remember that it's not necessarily the same thing as a calendar millennium. Right. Okay. They, the, two, the two are related. So built into modernity are both millennial dynamics and because of the impact of the technology which you described, a sort of built-in apocalyptic anxiety. In other words, I don't think you can have a modern society that isn't enormously subject to apocalyptic anxieties, that everything's going to fall apart. And I think we're all, I mean, anybody looking at the situation in Britain or a situation in the United States or the situation in France, I mean, literally democracies are starting to behave in the most bizarre ways and they're they're basically being tested there's a there's an earthquake and the question is how do they handle that quake and what what has me despairing is to look at something like that panorama program about the labor party and anti-semitism i'm a medieval historian i don't know all the details but what i think i'm looking at is the hostile takeover of a liberal party by a radical group who bring in 160,000 new members who are spouting anti-Semitic discourse wherever they're picking it up from. But clearly there are people who are taking pleasure in reducing Jews to tears by what they say. And it's actually not that hard to reduce Jews to tears with, with verbal moral sadism. So you have these people coming in and you know, you're looking at the people who who are in charge of keeping this kind of discourse out of the party, and they're like, you know, the Dutch kid with his finger in the dike when the when the the tsunami hits. And meantime, Corbyn and his buddies, who have been platforming with jihadis since the year 2000, the these guys are opening the sluice gates behind the scenes and turning to the public and saying we're completely against this stuff. So when you can see a party being taken over, by, literally a hostile takeover by radicals, um, that's terrifying. Hopefully that party will shrivel in the hands of the people who have put their claws into it. If you look at how the West is handling these crises, there is reason to be apocalyptic. I have a slightly different okay. framework for understanding this, right. but it's not necessarily one that, that right. contradicts everything you've been saying. I think technology has empowered charismatic leaders. The collapse of institutions that's, that's been brought about by so many different factors has encouraged people to look for loud and convincing voices and arguments that make sense of disorientating change. And I, I would see it at every level of society. But I think it's no accident that we've been through a period where very unexpected people have been come to power, or elected to public office. Donald Trump is one of them, the, the, the so-called populists. Right, Donald um, Trump at, at, at a time when social media, for example, is empowering populists and mini populists right. all over the world and shrinking the world as it does so. Especially in Islam, actually, the shrinking of the world through social media has allowed these apocalyptic narratives, this talk of yes. the Jews are behind everything, oh, yeah. to spread like a virus. Yeah, actually, you know, we, we, we used to talk about this at the Center for Millennial Studies, how um, new inventions in, in communications technology, like printing, trigger apocalyptic expectations. And Very some much. of the early Very adopters much. of the new technology are the apocalyptic entrepreneurs who take advantage of it. Luther's a really good It, it used to be said two things. Two things happen when a new, right. new communications technology. Right. First, 
there's a load of pornography that appears. Right. And secondly, there are lots of apocalyptic prophecies circulating. Okay. Certainly the case in the 16th certainly century the case, right. and, and certainly now. The case here. Okay, so we, you know, earlier you were saying that the Arabs have never really been on top of technology. Actually, the jihadis have made use of the technology and, and innovated in the technology of recruiting for jihad through the internet in ways that, that really make them leaders in the field. Well, there's a degree of technical mastery, which we've seen in the... Yeah. Particularly, the right. video-making skills of ISIS well, were it starts the terrifyingly the slick. The Palestinians are sort of the, the the ground zero, and they help the other groups to do this. And okay, and well, groups. I mean, you and I do not see necessarily eye to eye on the. Like, I'm not sure about I can send you labeling the Palestinians. Thus, would be my approach, but. Certainly, I have Palestinian jihadis. Palestinian jihadis. Jihadis everywhere everywhere have turned out to be, despite the failure of the Muslim world to produce a single world-class university, have turned out to be enormously adept and creative at spreading narratives that, in many cases, have been borrowed from 20th century European history. Now, you will point out that they had precursors much earlier, but I have seen, for example, in the street next to me, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion on sale in an ostensibly peaceful Muslim bookshop. So there is this extraordinary transmission of one mythology from one community to another, almost unchanged. Some of the details yes. changed, but, right. but effectively untrue. Right, and of course, when the protocols were written, there was no Israel, and now there is, so it has to be explained. So it's no longer ruthless cosmopolitans, yeah. but the first beachhead. And and the protocols is, it's a Western product. It's actually the product of the Russian secret police and uh, Dreyfus uh, opponents in Paris at the turn of the century, end of the 19th century. And it's this conspiracy theory that the Jews are secretly planning, they are introducing democracy and markets and capitalism in order to destabilize the world, convince stupid Gentiles to get rid of their aristocracy and kings and institute democracies, and then the Jews will take over and enslave them all. Now, what's involved in this, aside from attributing unbelievable capacities to the Jews, Nietzsche and Darwin are pawns of the Jews to create atheism and stuff. So aside from attributing unbelievable capacities to the Jews, it projects a deep malevolence. They're doing it to enslave mankind. And the people who accuse us of doing this are the ones who want to do it. Hitler, as he was accusing the Jews of wanting to enslave mankind, was planning to. And the jihadis, as they accuse us of wanting to enslave mankind, are, not from their point of view, but from our point of view, trying to do it. Richard, how do we negotiate our way through a world in which medieval homicidal fantasies are being entertained (laughs) By the sophisticated right. dinner party left. Right, 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 right. Okay, so I really think that um, the first thing we have to do is we have to change the way we talk. Um, I personally, I have this, it's a pretty radical theory, but I think a lot of the behavior 
of the progressive left is actually what I call proleptic dimitude, which is... Proleptic dimitude. Yes. Okay, there's a neologism <laughs> for you. Okay, yeah. So Explain. All right, so dimitude is the status Can of... We, could the could you explain proleptic to me, please? We'll Sorry. All right, so dimitude is the... <laughs> The status of non-Muslims in a Muslim society, that's the ones that were tolerated. And they're tolerated as second-class citizens. One of the key dimensions of being a dhimmi is you break the pact and therefore are subject to violence if you blaspheme, what they consider to be blaspheming, which is more or less if you say anything negative about Islam and Muslims. So there's a kind of understood pact in the dhimmi pact that you don't criticize. Proleptic means in anticipation of. So even before being conquered by jihadi armies, we are adopting behavior that is prescribed for dhimmi, which is not to criticize Islam. So you have the term Islamophobia, and literally in England, you can lose your job if you're accused of Islamophobia. That's perfectly true. What is not, however established is the is our conquest by jihadi armies right. what we've seen are horrible right. and so what al I'm although is... not not precisely random totally unexpected and sometimes not closely connected acts of terrorism by a network that is, that is clearly not particularly well coordinated even though it might be well funded and very very menacing yeah i'm not talking about that because in some senses we're going to make that unnecessary by surrendering beforehand in other words, when we refuse to say something like the Muslim radical right, let's call it the radical right because it is yep. a right-wing movement, the Muslim radical right is permeated by exterminationist anti-Semitism, and you get called an Islamophobe and shut down and can't publish, whereas somebody like Jeremy Corbyn can platform with people who are embracing this and become the head of the Labour Party, and possibly become Prime Minister, we're dealing with a world that's completely askew. Well, let, let, let me give you an example. I remember after the horrible atrocity in Sri Lanka, I was oh, on yeah. a train, and I thought, well, I'll check the BBC website to find out details. I already knew who was responsible. Mm -hmm. And I read a long article in which, at the very bottom, there was a reference to some people blame this on a local jihadist network but <laughs> right. the, you know the well, word you the is, the islamic was there. not right. mentioned and incidentally right. i've talked to a journalist right. in the bbc right. who doesn't subscribe to the bbc consensus who is right. in despair yeah. over um such a cowardly report right so you've heard there, there's a, a disease called sipa c-i-p-a i don't know what the a stands for but it's chronic insensitivity to pain and basically, the body, the nerves in the body are not sending messages to the brain of pain. So you can literally burn off your hand and not know it, okay? The media is the sensors that are sending messages to the brain about what's happening. And they are systematically understating the problem. Rotherham is a perfect example. And Islamophobia plays its role in making it impossible to talk about these things. So you end up with this loopy... Inversion. On the one hand, when people c compare Israel to the Nazis, which is, in my mind, moral sadism, and the Israelis complain, or the Zionists complain, they're told, oh, you just want to stop any criticism of, of Israel. 
when the Muslims use the term Islamophobia to shut up any criticism of Islam, we say, oh yeah, you're right. When I'm talking about the Muslim community, we have a community in which a fair number of people are behaving in ways that are alarming. Here I have to agree with you, while at the same time insisting that the vast majority of Muslims do not support jihadist ideology, and I, I, I think you would accept that anyway. I would accept that, but if we really believed it, in other words, if it wasn't just some pious virtue signal... We'd we say really more about it. it. Not only would we say we'd ally with these people, we'd reward these people, we'd strengthen these people, and instead we'd turn our back on them and let the jihadis and the caliphaters and the radical Muslims eat them up in their own communities. Well, what I have noticed is the failure of the Muslim community to speak as loudly and convincingly as it might about the threat that co-religionists, even if they don't get on with those co-religionists, mm -hmm. do pose to ordinary people. Yeah. yeah in the aftermath of atrocities. In other words, one of the key problems of the 21st century, or I like to think of it as the third millennium, because I like to think we'll be here in another thousand years, one of the basic problems is the relationship of Muslims to what they call infidels. And their term for us is, we are covering the truth and we're doing it deliberately. Well, and you so say the their radicals, term, I mean, you know, my, my close Muslim friend right? would never use the word infidel fine. and doesn't think in those so terms. Fine. So yeah. but the point is that we need people like that to be articulating a religiosity for Muslims which is not only a theology or a theological discourse, but also practical means of living that, that can embrace the non-Muslim other. And so we we empower, I mean, this is Melanie Phillips' book on Lindonistan. You can cut that if you want. But, you know, basically... <laughs> it's okay to refer to Melanie. She's, um, she, she's a brilliant writer. Right, but like, like you, she's a controversial figure. Right, right. But, I mean, her point was... When, and I make this point about Bush's speech right after 9-11, when the attack came, we turned not to the genuinely moderate Muslims, even though we kept insisting that we were doing this on their behalf and that we imagined they were the vast majority of Muslims, for which there is not a whole lot of evidence, right? Mostly it's the people we meet. But the vast majority of Muslims, we never meet. So, um, and we don't meet them in their own communities. So this attitude, and who do we turn to? We don't turn to the moderates. We turn to the radicals who are not using violence. And we say, these are the authentic Muslims, and they only, they're the only ones with street cred. So we have to deal with them. So literally what you've done is you've gone from the tough cop, the jihadi, to the nice cop. And the nice cop isn't saying that this is terrible and it should never happen. He's saying this is terrible, it should never happen. But, you know, if you don't want it to happen again, this is what you need to do. Change your foreign policy. Stop bad-mouthing Muslims. Stop doing this. Stop doing that. Have us train your police. And we literally turn to the radicals to have them tell us how to protect ourselves from their buddies. Final question. We are watching the Islamization of Indonesia and 
other parts of the world, uh, we're witnessing particularly nasty outbreak of um, Islamization, though it's disguised as a dispute between herders in mm. Nigeria. To what extent do you think these renascent Muslim movements are driven by apocalyptic or millennial mm. fantasies? And or to what extent do you think that this this is bound up with local power politics? Right. So, first of all, I think that apocalyptic discourse, that is, it's now, is always at a sort of murmur level. There are always people who are sort of trying it out to see who responds. So you, you mumble, and when you get more of a response, your voice rises. And uh, I argue the critical moment is when a, an apocalyptic preacher goes public, does he get shut down either through ridicule or do the police shut him down? Uh, does he get shut down or does he take? And those are the movements when millennial movements take, is when they go public and people get enthused about them. Now, in 1979, I think you had the first, it, it's the year 1400 in Islam. There were people, there's a whole tradition about end of uh, century in Islam. And Khomeini rode to power on it, but there were a lot of other manifestations, including in Mecca, of this sort of uh, Mahdi jihadi behavior. Apocalyptic rhetoric, that is, now is the time to take over the world, by and large doesn't appeal because it seems so impossible. The only way you can get a movement started is by making it believable that this can happen. And I would say that the way the West has responded to the challenge has in fact recruited more people for jihad than anything else. That when we say, oh, I don't want to denounce a radical Islam because that would reaffirm their narrative about a clash of civilizations, we think that that's lessening it. But what it's doing is it's empowering these people because we don't, won't even recognize that they're there. And the people who have to make the choice, the Muslims in the middle, who have to decide who's the strong horse here, look at us and say, we're not the strong horse. Being a moderate is not gonna pay off in the future. Richard Landis, thank you very much. <laughs>